You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Well, we were going to start our series in Haggai. And the reason I say were is I want to just confess some things with uh, you guys as a church as to why we're not. If you're visiting with us, this will give you insight as to where we are. Uh, this will give you insight as to where I am in my own life. Uh, I just want to share this with you as well. I confess to you that uh, this is going to be a challenging message for me today. Largely because I'm a very passionate man. I'm unafraid to speak out for a cause or act for a cause I believe in. It's part of how I'm made, I think, probably why I'm called into the vocation that I'm called into. Uh, then I read a blog written by a pastor named Jonathan Martin, and it just causes me to think even more uh, intentionally through these things that have been stirring in me for literally years. Um, but in terms of where we are in uh, our world, causes me to think through them with greater intentionality. It seems like over the last few weeks I have been pulled into conversations about politics, about theology, about culture. Whether I'm at my part-time job at work with my coworkers, or whether I'm in the church or whether I'm on the street, or whether I'm just at the coffee shop, or whether I'm at home watching TV or on Facebook or listening to the radio, whatever the case may be. These conversations, I confess to you, invariably create a tension within me. Uh, and at times it's a good tension, at times it's a bad tension. But the good tension... Uh, is one that causes me to measure my own motives and causes me to question myself and to keep the posture of my heart in check. And when I say posture of my heart, I mean sort of my inner attitude and my motives. This tension causes me to ask myself two questions. Uh, am I speaking or am I going to speak, not in terms of preaching, I mean living life. Am I going to act out of a place of, of frustration or anger or to make myself feel better, call it righteous indignation? Or am I going to act out of genuine brokenness, out of a godly love and out of compassion, out of a desire to genuinely feel what Jesus feels? And you can't escape it, these conversations. These conversations about politics, theology, culture, they find platforms through various media outlets. Uh, they find platforms in the workplace, in the church, like I said on Facebook. They even find their way into my beloved Chick-fil-A and start messing with my chicken sandwich. And the general problems with these conversations is that they affect both our world and our society. They affect our city. They affect our homes. They affect the church. And so they stir tensions within us. Right now, some of you are feeling a bit tense because you don't know where I'm going. And that's what this does for us. And I know you can relate. So during political season, we find ourselves inflamed by various issues, ones we believe deeply in. Because we as Christians have a belief that is informed by our faith. And hopefully, it's our faith that informs our politics and our theology and our view of culture, not our politics that defines or forms our faith, not culture that forms our faith, but that our faith forms and defines these things. And I do believe that all of us have the right motives. If I'm going I'm to go out and give... I genuinely believe God's people and, and all of us in our family that, that we just want to believe what God wants us to believe and do what God wants us to do. And it's just really that simple, but yet that incredibly complex. And so we find ourselves looking out for our families and our city and our state and our country and our world. And it doesn't take long before we look out and see that regardless of those particular conversations of politics, theology, and culture, it's hard to argue that our world is just broken. And that injustices prevail and that there's betrayal and sin and sickness and death and poverty and uh, just all of the different issues in our world. And then we're wondering what would Jesus do? 
And in my case, I'm wondering what Jesus would do when I'm sitting in my part-time job and I hear my coworkers dehumanize people. Nothing against my coworkers as a whole, obviously, just making the point that I find myself listening or hearing conversations that dehumanize the poor by comparing them to animals and then dehumanize the rich by comparing them to power-mongering demagogues. Sometimes I hear that language explicitly and sometimes we hear it implicitly. But what we fail to realize is all it does is dehumanize them. Out of our anger and fear and frustration, we make generalizations that lead to terrible mischaracterizations that calls us, if we're not careful as Christ followers, to miss the very heart of God and His love for all people. And as a pastor, I struggle even more deeply because I listen to this dialogue and I think to myself of the poor that I love in this very church, of the rich that I love and care for in this very church. And I think to myself, they're anything but that. I know you and you know me. We're in family. Christ. And I hear these generalizations and mischaracterizations, and I confess to you that I become angry and frustrated, and I don't know what to do with myself. And so when I don't know what to do with myself, I have just a belief that I just need to shut up. And so I did, and I do, and I try. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But I find myself saddened either way. And then I look at my own life. And I realize and I remember that I was raised on the WIC program. And my family made food come to the table because of food stamps. And no one worked harder than my father. My mom just had a surprise with two twins. Not two twins, but one set of twins. That'd be weird. You can call that twins. And she was sick and couldn't work. And like I said, then I look out here and I see people I love and I hear those dehumanizing statements and that dehumanizing rhetoric and it makes me sad. And so my greatest struggle is what would Jesus do? What would he say? Not what I would say because that may not be right. But what would he have me do and how would he have me act? After all, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God first and then I'm a citizen of this good country and then I'm a citizen of the greater world. And so I wonder what I need to do, and I wonder what then we need to do as his people. And so over the last few months, I've just been praying, and I always pray when it comes to these series is what do we need to talk about as a church? What does God, he can see our hearts, he knows what we need. What do we need here as a church? And so I pray and I pray, and so we plan a series, and we go with it the best we can, praying that I've heard the Spirit, bounce it off the elders, bounce it off the staff, let people know kind of what's going on, try to do this not just as a singular effort, but as a collective effort. And And so I was all stoked over this Haggai thing about the study in Old Testament book that hardly anybody knows about. Two chapters, we're going to stretch out into four weeks, go figure. But it's going to be a great study. You know, we're going to have this great contextual thing and get into this history, uncover a book that none of us have maybe, some of us have maybe uh, read, but none of us have maybe given a lot of thought about, maybe we have. And and so now we get into this lull. And and over the last several months, I need to tell you that, that I have felt, and I don't normally talk like this, and those who know me know this, but I felt like the Lord was telling me, Fred, just give him Jesus. And so I would think, okay, Lord, I mean, I'm giving him Jesus. We did the Colossians series, and I felt like that was a pretty Christ-exalting series. And I 
prayed that Christ was exalted above all things in that series. I mean, the whole thing was Christ alone is everything. So I'm like, you give him, and then God is still saying, I think, and, you know, the Spirit's saying you will give them Jesus. So we get into the one another series. And it's about us being the kind of one another people we need to be. And, and so I thought God saying, well, Fred, give them Jesus was, okay, make sure you, you don't lead them to think that we can do this all in our own strength. The gospel needs to be in and through all of this. And so I'm like, okay, we'll give them Jesus. And, and then we get into this lull. I'm all geared up, wrote the Haggai sermon, sent it to Garrett for the conversation, continued guide. It's all done. The teens are going to have what they need. And, and it feel like this voice kept getting louder and this just, just, it was just nagging and almost at times almost painful. It was like God was saying, just give them Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. Scrap the High Guy series for a little while until God makes something clear and I'm not as hard-headed and stubborn as I must have been over the last I don't know how long. And we're just going to look at Jesus. We're not going to talk about him as much as we're going to look at him. Obviously, we're going to have to talk about him, but hopefully we're going to listen to him, and hopefully we're going to see him. That's my prayer, because I don't know what to do, how to navigate life in this world and these so-called culture wars the way Jesus would. Uh, culture wars filled with Occupy protests, Chick-fil-A days, immense poverty, confusing tax laws, immigration battles, homelessness, class warfare, and of course, every other reason behind every other reason in this world, which is rebellion and disobedience towards its own creator. I feel like we just, maybe God is just saying we need Jesus. We need pure, simple, often offensive and disruptive, confusing yet comforting, the blunt and compassionate, unpartial, non-Republican, non-Democrat, non-Libertarian, non-White, Middle Eastern, Son of God, Son of Man, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Savior, Jesus. Maybe that's just who we need. We need to examine Him. Let Him speak. What He taught, how He lived, and how He taught what He taught, and how He lived out what He taught. And so I only ask you two things. Pray for me, please. I'll say that very selfishly. But pray for you, please. I ask you to open your mind and your heart to Jesus. And I also ask that you be gracious with me, because if you find yourself disagreeing with me, that's okay. Please email me. Don't just leave. Don't throw something. Um, Not that that's ever happened. Don't expect it to happen. If it does, Barry and Randy will start sitting right here because they're the two tallest guys in the church. Let's just work through this because my interpretation could be all jacked up. I just want Jesus to speak. I want to try and illuminate the text with Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 26. Appropriately, the name of this series, for however long it's going to be, just because it helps me with the filter, is going to be called With Jesus. I know what's going to go before that or after, but... I like that's what God wants us to do and who he wants us to live with. Matthew 26, the context is this tonight. Jesus is betrayed, about to be betrayed. It's the night of the garden. The night he's going to be delivered to death. 26, beginning verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had then given them a sign, and he said this, The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. So Judas went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, teacher, and kissed him. Jesus said to Judas, Friend, friend, why have you come? And then they came up and took hold of Jesus and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. Good old Peter. 
And he struck the high priest's slaves and cut off his ear. And then Jesus told Peter, put put your sword back in its place. Because all who take up a sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think, Peter, that I cannot call on my Father and He will provide for me at once more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the Scriptures be fulfilled if that happened that way? And you can't blame Peter. He's he's going to be the pastor of a church. He's going to be a leader in the movement. He's walked with Jesus. Of course you defend Jesus. You stand up for Jesus. Jesus says, I don't need you to stand up for me. I don't need you to defend me. I could call 12 legions of angels at any time. Put the sword away. John chapter 8, beginning verse 1. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he went to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, which are the religious leaders of the day, brought a woman caught in adultery, caught in the act of adultery, making her stand in the center. They say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women. And that was absolutely true. They were right. And so they turn to Jesus and say, what do you say? Verse 6, they asked this to trap Jesus in order that they may have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with its finger. Pastors and preachers love this text because we like to imagine whether it was tic-tac-toe and ichthus, a poem, her name, his name, whatever. Either way... It says, he stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, verse 7, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin, the one among you, should be the first to cast the stone. And then the text says, he stood down again and continued writing on the ground, as if he wasn't finished with his picture. And when they heard this, verse 9, they left one by one, starting with the older men, which is what you hope would happen, the more mature ones. Only Jesus was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You look at Matthew 26, and you look at the story there, and Jesus is about to be attacked, and Peter does what any good Christian would do, and he stands up for Jesus and goes to defend him, as if Jesus couldn't defend himself. And we live in a culture that teaches us to stand up for what you believe. I teach my son and we'll teach my son the same thing. I believe in that. We live in a culture that tells us to defend our faith or fight for what you believe in. And Again, if anyone knows me by now, knows my personality, does life with me, you know that that's my mantra. It's part of how I'm built. It's part of my ego. It's part of my sinfulness, but it's also part of my conviction. And 
And then I look at this, and I look at the culture wars, and I look at culture, and then I think, well, you know, we must, we must step back and reboot our minds for just a moment and, and ask ourselves if we are being like Jesus. If we're even hearing Jesus. Jesus tells Peter, I don't need you to defend me. You need to stand up for me. I can call 12 legions of angels. I can handle things. This didn't surprise me what was happening here, Peter. Instead, Jesus was really asking Peter to stand not up for him, but to stand with him. Remember? Stand with me in the garden, Peter. Stand with me in this ministry of the kingdom of God, Peter. After the resurrection, stand with me and feed my sheep, Peter. And see, then you look at John 8, and you look at verses 1 through 11, and you see this adultery woman, adulterous woman who should have been stoned. According to law, she broke the law. She broke the law legally. She broke the law spiritually. She just flat out broke the law. Caught in the act, what some people might call a homewrecker. She is found. She is caught. She is accused by the religious group that's supposed to be able to say she was wrong, and they come and they bring her to her. And after all, the Pharisees were standing up for law. They were standing up for what is holy, yet somehow... In in this story, they found themselves at odds with Jesus. And they were doing it according to law. See, because I think one thing we learn when we read the Gospels is that when encountering Jesus, the Pharisees never misquoted Scripture. They misapplied it. They never got Scripture wrong. They got the application all wrong. They knew, they knew the letter of the law, but they did not know the spirit of the law because the spirit of the law always pointed to and landed back at Jesus. Jesus would even say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. I think the Pharisees became so aware of what they were against that they had forgotten what they were supposed to be for. They had forgotten what God was for. See, if God and Jesus Christ demonstrated anything, He proved that He was absolutely for the sinner. And in this story in John 8, Jesus shows that He was for the woman and she was the very same woman that the religious were against. And they had, they had law on their side. The difficult and unnerving truth is that in the Gospels, Jesus is for the very people the religious people are against. It was true then in church. It's true today. Question. Just an honest question. As followers of Jesus, are we known more for what we are for or what we are against? Sometimes I wonder if we know what we are against better than what we know we are for. And so we have a Chick-fil-A day or we boycott something or we occupy something. And this is what culture sees us do. This is what they see. This is how they come to know the church. And so the truth is, you ask an unbeliever, and I did this again this week, several, and I do this often. Ask an unbeliever, a person who doesn't claim a faith in Christianity, and ask them, what are Christians about? And see what the answers are. And you may find that the majority of the answers of the majority of the people that you poll can quickly say what we are against, but not what we are for. 
When you look through Scripture, particularly the New Testament, you find words like defend or contend. Defend or contend for the faith, which convey this idea of standing up until you read the context of these verses. And then you find the verses that talk about defending the faith or contending for the faith isn't about contending or defending in the way of standing up that we talk about. It's usually within the context of dealing with those who already claim to be religious. Contend for the faith against those who are teaching false doctrine. People who already claim a certain religious know-it-all-ish or a religious affiliation or conviction. You find that it's not talking about the unbelieving or the sinner. And frankly, when you look at the Greek in some of these words, a better translation would be laboring for the faith, working for the faith. But we live in a society and in a religious culture that says we contend, defend, and we confess. And even Ephesians 6 is oftentimes applied where we see that it talks about the spiritual warfare, but we, we sometimes fail to lose the context or fail to capture the context where it's telling us to defend ourselves and one another, but it's not equating that to defending God himself. It's not talking about a battle fought on human level and on human terms. It's talked about a spiritual battle fought in the lens of faith. And as a matter of fact, toward the end of that text, it says to make sure that we have our feet sandaled with the gospel of peace of shalom and wholeness. It is not one calling us to a defensive posture. None of these verses are, I don't believe. They're calling us to a posture of faith. That's contend to defend. And then there is the confess. And I don't know if you get these, but I get these emails all the time. You know the emails you get that, that, that try to guilt trip you into, into the trap of standing up for your faith in a defensive posture? Uh, you, you know the ones, they make some sort of Christian statement, some sort of Christian truth against culture, and then at the end, gently remind you that if you don't forward it to 462 people, then you've denied Jesus and you hate babies. And, 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 it's this, and then they always quote at the end of the, of the email, Matthew 10, 32, that says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. You know the things, I get them. You get them. That's not what confess means, biblically. See, biblically, the call to confess Jesus before and to the world doesn't simply mean with our lips or in an email. It literally does mean with obedience. It means with our lips and our lives. It means to love as Jesus loved and live as Jesus lived. So to confess him with our lips and not with our lives is not to confess him at all. And I'm not really sure Jesus ever invited Christians to stand up for him. I think Jesus invited Christians to stand with him. Because frankly, that is much more difficult. See, he made it clear to Peter. And I think he made it clear in his story with the woman. And he made it clear to the Pharisees. And I think when we look at it through the Gospels, we find that Jesus invites us to stand with God. Not up for God. But to stand with him. And and, and by, by demonstrating and proclaiming his love and way of life. Because when we stand with Jesus, we stand up for love. Matter of fact, in your conversation, God, there's one, here's another, that standing up for Jesus like Peter and standing with Jesus is different. It's different because it requires a different posture of the heart. See, if I'm sitting down and, and, and Randy comes running at me, uh, I'm running. And then, uh, but if you come running, somebody smaller like Bert comes running at me. <laughs> I love you, bro. I just did that. If Bert comes running at me, this is inappropriate to talk about, I think. I'm going to stand up in a defensive posture. A standing up. 
versus standing with. The whole concept of standing up has within it the connotation of a defensive posture. Standing with has buried within its words the connotation of solidarity and love. Solidarity based upon love. I think Jesus is asking his people to stand with him. But many times we are too busy standing up for him. A lot of times out of our deep passion, maybe even our frustration, anger, maybe even our fears. And if we want to make ourselves feel good about it, like I do sometimes, we call it righteous indignation. But here's the truth. You and I can stand up for Jesus without standing with him. But you cannot stand with him without standing for his love and way of life. You can't. See, anybody can stand up for him. We do it all the time, and it results itself in a, in a protest, a boycott, and then we get known for the things we are against, not for the things we are for. But if we stand with Jesus, we find ourselves standing with the people that Jesus stood with, like the woman caught in the, in the, in the sin of adultery. We find ourselves standing with him there, drawing right beside him, while our religious peers who are right stand around with stones in their hands, and they've got book, chapter, and verse on their side, and we're scared to death, but we're standing with Jesus, and we're wondering, I hope you know what you're doing, man. And that becomes much more difficult, because our natural proclivity is to pick up a stone too. To quote the scripture with the Pharisees. And to stand up for law and holiness. But when we stand with Jesus, we stand up for what his law was based upon. And that is love. Which when seen, leads to a different way of life. Which is why he probably could tell the woman, go and sin no more. Nobody loved her like he did. Especially a rabbi. I want to encourage you, church. Step away long enough from the rhetoric and passion that you don't miss the message found in these two stories. What does standing with Jesus look like? When Jesus, God incarnate, came, he stood with tax collectors, the rich and the powerful. He stood with the lepers and the poor. He stood with the prostitutes and the live-ins and the live-outs and the divorces and the married. He stood with the people that society was standing up against. He stood with the people oftentimes that religious society was having boycotts for. Did Jesus speak the truth? Of course he did, but he practiced the truth before he ever spoke it. He practiced it in love. Like in John 8, you look at, the, look at the dialogue in verse 10. Where are the ones who are going to condemn you? Has no one condemned you? Rhetorical question. No, my Lord. She knows what she did. She knows she deserved a stone. She had to have. Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Jesus didn't give her a lesson on family values here. And he could have and should have. She was sleeping with another woman's man. Where's the lesson on family values? But he doesn't. Does it mean he didn't care? You say, well, he said, go and sin no more. Well, we're going to get to that. I think, I think that's very important. But Jesus first proved that he was for her. 
by advocating for her and not accusing her, by accepting her while not affirming her lifestyle. Jesus served as her advocate, not her accuser. She was accused enough as it was. People who are living their life in sin and who have a severe lifestyle that that may be sinful or are practicing certain things in their life, their, their life accuses them in light of the word of God. What God wants us to do is learn how to accept them while not affirming the sin. And that is a tension. I know that's a tension. I know that tension. I know it in ministry and I know it in life. I know it in my own heart. It is a tension. And so what we want to do is we want to resolve the tension. And we say, well, Fred, but if I stand with, you know, this person living this way, then, what, then, I'm, then I'm affirming what they're... No, you're not affirming what they're doing unless you let them know that's what you're doing. But if you stand with them and you advocate for them and you love them and you stand with Jesus and not against them, but you let them know that God is for them, so therefore you are for them, it changes things. It changes things. Because accusations do not convict. Love convicts. Parents, you know this. Accusation can bring about admission, but it does not bring about conviction and conversion. Jesus first proved he was for her by accepting her while not affirming her sin. And he did this by demonstrating Not just talking about it. Not just saying, now you know I love you. But by demonstrating that he was her advocate, not her accuser. I have been the accuser. I have stood up for Jesus. We need to stand with Jesus. Frankly, that's a whole lot more difficult. So how? How do we stand with Jesus? How do we stand with him to let others know that we are for them? Well, number one in your conversation guide, we have to believe with all our heart that people outside of Christ need to know that we are for them because God is for them. They have to know what we are for more than they know what we are against. If they know more what we are against than what we are for, then we have failed. I think we have failed because no one knew. If you ask people what Jesus was for, what are they always going to say? He was for love. We read the scripture. We know Jesus didn't water down the truth, but we, we confuse as to what he, what he does and to whom he speaks. When he's talking to the religious church, he speaks with bluntness because they're the ones who say they know better. So he hits them in between the eyes very, very hard and calls them whitewashed tombs. Hypocrites. Children of snakes. But then he has the audacity to go to the other extreme and stand with the prostitute and the adulterer in solidarity of love for her. And what we do is we take the approach that Jesus had toward the religious and we apply it towards the unreligious and think that we're good Christians standing up for Jesus. And the the reality is he never invited us to stand up for him. He invited us to stand with him because if we stand with him, we will stand with those who need him. We will tell them. We will email them. We will demonstrate to them that God is for them no matter what they have been for. And you say, but the text says, well, just remember, the Pharisees did not misquote Scripture. They misapplied it. We need to be advocates more than accusers. 
And we can do this by acceptance and not affirmation. And I know it creates tension. But the world needs to know that God is for them. And you know, when I, when I look at my life and you look at your life, I mean, raise your hand if you've never sinned. Raise your hand if you have sinned. When we look at our lives, honestly, and we look at the times where we did not care what God thought, we were in blatant and utter rebellion against the way of Jesus. That where we became the sexually immoral, the gossipers, the liars, the cheaters, the thieves, the, 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 the wealth mongering, the, 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 the poor mouthing, the whatever, we, whatever we want to say, whatever we want to do, when we were that person, when we were just drunk off our minds and drunk out of our minds, is it not true that Jesus still stood with us? I mean, thank God he didn't stand against us. And, and so when I look at the world and I look at my own hypocrisy and I look at my own life and I look at Christian culture and I look at politics, theology, and culture and these so-called culture wars, I, do, I find conviction in my soul and I think to myself, why would I ever assume that God wants me to stand up for Him when all He's ever invited me to do is simply to stand with Him because that's what He's done with me? Should it be that hard? Yes and no. Number two, what we should do. We should know that what sets us apart is love. Not anger, protest, boycotts, or self-righteousness, but love. Jesus said they will know you by your love, not by the number of chicken sandwiches you'll buy on any given day. They will know what you are and what you believe by how you love one another and others. That's what he said. Anyone can run a protest or occupy something. I occupy my couch daily. I eat at Chick-fil-A often. <laughs> I'm not knocking these things uh, in and of themselves. I just think sometimes we can get sucked into this culture movement of standing up for Jesus and miss the fact that we're not standing with him. And so the people that we're trying to teach or preach or demonstrate something to end up knowing more of what we're against and not what we're for. And we wonder why the world's in the shape that it's in. We advocate instead of accuse, and we teach the world how to accept without affirming, and then we entrust the rest to God. Think of me what you like. Think of you what you like is what we feel. I made my peace a long time ago, and I say making my peace, that's a bit of an overstatement. It tears me up inside, to be quite honest with you, but on so many levels, I've had to let go of caring about what other people think about my faith or what I preach. I let God sort out the rest. If we became a church that actually started accepting people right where they are, loving them right where they are, and letting them know right where they are that God is for them, it is almost absolute that we're going to get a reputation as watering down something. I, I br bring that on. And I don't say that compatible. I'm saying I'm okay with that. Because when I look at Jesus, he wasn't a very popular fellow. When I look at the apostles in the early church, they were not known for a lot of things, but they were known for their love. Even unbelievers. I have a friend of mine who often says that in America, people have a lot of problems with Christianity for reasons many of which are good and for reasons none of which have to do with Jesus. 
And then he reminded me, Fred, it's your job to give Jesus a fair shot at people. Live that way. Even when I'm not affirming sin, but I'm accepting in love and wrestling with the tension, I wrestle with it and should wrestle with it with humility and with grace and with brokenness. Not out of anger, not out of frustration, but out of sadness. Because I know what breaks the heart of God, and so do you. And we know who God is for. He is for you and them. If you know that and I know that too, why can't we be for them too? Number three, let go of the heart of the issue and hold on to the heart of the Father. This will turn you to Jesus every time. If we could learn to let go of the heart of the issue and hold on to the heart of the Father, we will always find ourselves turning away from the issues and the self-centeredness that sometimes plays into that or the fear, the anger, and frustration and pulls us back to Jesus, frankly creates a lot of discomfort and a lot of confusion, but we at least still turn to Jesus. Let go of the heart of the issues. Don't hold on to those. Don't think that that's the issue in modern discourse over the next three months or the next three decades. Hold on to the heart of the Father, not a side of the aisle, or not a heart of an issue, heart of the Father. Number four, never forget, never forget that God was and always will be for you. There is nothing you did yesterday, there is nothing you could have done today, and there's nothing you can do tomorrow that will change the fact that God is for you. In my sinful stupidity of 10 years, he was for me, stood with me. And since I accepted his position in my life, has called me to stand with him. Because to stand with him is to stand for his love and way of life. That I not only am called to proclaim, but demonstrate. Just like Paul said in Romans. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we, what's the word? Stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given us. And you can sit there like me and you can think, man, I'm going to struggle with, with, with standing with people. It's much easier to stand up against or stand for or stand up for Jesus. It's much more difficult and nuanced to stand with Jesus and therefore stand with people who are clearly rebelling against God and, and wrestle with the tension of acceptance and affirmation and, and all that. Here's, here's what I just want to say. This is what I think part of what the text says is, is if you're a child of God and you're with Jesus, you're in Christ, you've been baptized into Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So the ability to love as Jesus loved is inside of you because God himself is inside of you. Now, you and I may mess that up a lot. We may make a lot of the wrong choices. We may start holding on to the wrong issues and let go of the heart of the Father, but it doesn't change the fact that you and I do have the strength to be this kind of people. I really believe that Jesus believed more in us than we believe in ourselves. 
Jesus, I think, really believed that when he prayed, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, may your kingdom come, he actually believed that his people could live in such a way that they changed the world, changed the world for the glory of God. But I, I don't think we sometimes believe that about ourselves, and maybe because we are often distracted. Maybe we just don't. But we have God's power within us. We just have to start making different choices. Decide to let go of the issue or the heart of the issue and grab onto the heart of the Father. This isn't to say you can have an opinion or belief or conviction. It's not what it's about. It's about standing with Jesus while you're wrestling through that. And just make sure that you're not standing against the very people that verse 6 in Romans chapter 5 speaks to, which is humanity. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment Christ died for the ungodly, while we didn't care, while we were rebellious and and hard-headed and stubborn, while we didn't even think we needed salvation or a Savior, while we were helpless, while we were even powerless in it all, Jesus stood with us on a cross. Verse 7, for rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If Christ stood with us in our sinful rebellion, why can't we stand with others? Especially since we are called to be instruments of peace in his hands and his feet. Verse 9, much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we'll be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were, what's this word? Enemies. It's like Paul's getting stronger with the language. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only that, but also rejoice in God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation through him. Notice that this says how much more we will be saved through his life. We always talk about his death saving us. But see, his life saves us too. Because in his life, we see love. In his life, the perfect law of God was kept. In his life, justice and mercy and faith were embodied. In his life, we not just learn. In his life, we live. With Jesus, we live. We are called to live with Jesus. This week, I just wanted to talk about the truth that we are called to stand with him. Because in standing with him, we stand with others that he is for.